Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, listeners. It's me, Julia. I just need to let you know that sadly there were some technical issues with part of our recording for this episode. So we can't share with you the wonderful stories Mary Robinson told about her early years growing up in Ireland. But if you are interested in learning about her childhood, please get a copy of her wonderful memoir, Everybody Matters. I listened to it as an audiobook and Mary reads it herself. I just love the scene she was speaking directly to me. In it, she talks about being the daughter of two medical doctors and how she learned concepts about rights and justice from her grandfather, who was a lawyer. However, she makes it clear that boys and girls were treated differently, recounting, and I quote, One afternoon, I was climbing a particular tree in front of the house that had very interesting branches. My grandfather came out with his walking stick and spotted me quite high up. He shouted at me to come down in a voice that made me move to a higher branch. He whacked the tree with his stick and said, You have to be sent away to school. You are not becoming a young lady. He went inside and rang my father. When I returned home with my brothers, my father called me into his surgery and told me I was going to boarding school. As a result, off to a girls' Catholic secondary school, Mary went. At the end of her schooling, she considered becoming a nun, but a gap year in Paris filled with study and new experiences, gave her a different perspective on life. I hope you enjoy hearing the rest of her story. I'm Julia Gillard and this is a podcast of one's own. In today's episode, joining us from Dublin is one of the world's most inspiring woman political leaders. In 1990, in a country where women were still largely treated as second-class citizens, she was the first woman ever elected as president, serving in that office for seven years. She then became the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, and she has continued to use her platform to campaign for women's rights and climate justice. I'd like to welcome... Mary Robinson. I think at this stage it would be good just to explain that the Senate in Ireland's a bit different to the Senate in other places. And so you get elected to the Senate from various uh, places in Irish society, including the university directly elects people to the Senate. I mean, you were a very young woman and you ran as an independent, but were successful. And you use that position to fight for women's rights, including making contraceptive legally available. 
And that won you many enemies. The local bishop denounced you from the pulpit in your hometown while your parents were sitting in the congregation, while the archbishop in Dublin sent a letter to be read out in every diocese saying it would be a curse upon the country if this legislation passed. Did you find this level of opposition surprising? How did you cope with it? Had you expected it when you introduced this legislation on contraception? I found it very surprising and very disturbing because I was used to being liked and to some extent admired for what I was doing. You know, I was getting on rather well. And suddenly I was getting these hate letters. I became so distressed that I had married in December 1970 and my husband, Nick, decided to burn the letters, which we both now regret because we're archival people and we feel it would have been better if this had just been a a sense of how disturbing it was to talk about anything to do with sex in Ireland at that time. It just wasn't done. And I was breaking open something that people did not want to think about or talk about. And so people were very distressed. And it kind of was an important lesson to me in a way later when I became high commissioner and was dealing with early child marriage, with genital, female genital cutting, and that you have to educate from within over time. Now, actually, the bills, because we, my two colleagues in the Senate and myself, we introduced three different bills. We started by reforming the criminal law, and then we moved rather quickly to health, family planning, two more bills, but they were defeated, um, the bills. And then about nine years after we'd started, the government introduced what was called an Irish solution to the Irish problem, which did move things forward. We talk a lot now about social media vilification and misogyny directed at women, but it is worth remembering, and certainly your story reminds us, that even before social media, there was pressure on women who were in the public square, but just expressed in a different way. So the hate mail you received, you were sent condoms in the mail. There was a rumour started, talk about fake news, but there was a rumour started that somehow you and your family owned pharmacies and were going to be enriched if contraception was for sale. Now, with social media, there's an immediacy to the vilification that comes in now, but really, in many ways, the nature of it is the same. What would you say to women now who are taking a stand and are finding themselves the subject of hatred, death threats, rape threats, the sorts of things that we all too regularly see on social media? Well, I do remember, you know, in the heat of the hate mail I was receiving, walking down the main street in Dublin, Grafton Street, and actually being afraid that somebody was going to jump out and tell me, as the letters had told me, that I was a witch from hell. That was when Nick burned the the letters. And then I kind of steadied myself somehow. And I said, you know, I am doing this because I believe it's important for women that we move on and that we have our choices and that we can learn to space our children and that will be much better. And I know this is right. It somehow helped me. And I said, I'm not being arrogant about this. I believe this fundamentally from a human rights point of view. And so somehow that helped me. And never after that, I mean, I got criticized later for a number of things, but nothing touched me in the same way. So I think you learn to believe in yourself and believe in what you're doing and go forward regardless of, and perhaps not paying too much attention to what's on the social media. I think that's probably a wise thing. That's a wonderful message. Thank you. 
Now, you joined the Irish Labor Party and you stood unsuccessfully on more than one occasion for a seat in the Irish equivalent of the House of Commons or the House of Representatives here in Australia. Now, many women would look at you today and they'd probably just conclude to themselves that your career has been one success after another, but that isn't the whole story. So what lessons did you learn from these defeats? What did you take with you? I certainly felt very down immediately afterwards because I had run, especially the first time, out of a strong conviction that I could broaden my political contribution by being a member of the more powerful lower chamber of our parliament. But in retrospect, I was aware that I was lucky that my life took a different course, despite appearing maybe as if I'd planned all the steps in my life. I really didn't. And I especially didn't plan the idea of becoming president of Ireland. I never even thought about it. And so opportunities still came your way. You seem during this period of your life when you joined the Labor Party, when you were running for the lower house seats, you seem to be weighing up on a number of occasions whether the best change strategy was being in a political party or being an independent, whether the best change strategy was being in politics directly in the parliament or whether it was using the law, particularly the human rights aspects of the law, to try and change things like access to divorce and so many other what we would now consider basic rights for women and for families. Can you give us an insight into how you were weighing up those competing considerations in your head back then and how you think about that now? Yes, I was weighing them up because I had opportunities as a practising barrister to take cases. I took a case for a poor woman in Cork who couldn't get legal aid to get a judicial separation. There was no divorce in Ireland and judicial separation was in the High Court. And we won that case in the Court of Human Rights. It was the first Irish successful case, but it had meaning for the whole of Europe because it meant you had to have civil legal aid when you had serious family issues. And we introduced legal aid in Ireland. And they were the kind of cases that I loved I mean, the last case that I pleaded, I actually left my campaign as president to go back to the court in Luxembourg for two unemployed married women who were being discriminated in their unemployment benefit. And I was president before the judgment of the court. We won, and it meant a significant number of married women got back payments for that discrimination as married women in unemployment benefit. They were the cases that I loved, and I felt you know, that that could make a real difference And so it was sort of frustrating in ways not to be able to do more politically. And I had actually retired from the Senate after 20 years in August 1989. My legal practice had developed and I had joined chambers in London with Anthony Lester, who sadly died a short time ago, a great human rights lawyer. And life was good. We had these three children and my husband and myself were involved with a Centre for European Law in Trinity College, which was preparing different sectors of society for the directives and regulations of the European Union. So I think in the end, personally, I felt the non-political was winning out and I hadn't ever thought of being president. And yet you did end up president. But before we talk about that, you've mentioned your husband, Nick, and your family. And I just want to uh, talk to you about uh, your personal circumstances. You met your husband when you were law students and you, of course, married. But that did cause a rift with your parents, which mended over time. 
but unfortunately they didn't come to your wedding. Can you explain what that was about and what it said about the island of the times? It was complicated because Nick and myself were in class together for four years in law in Trinity. He spent at least three of those four years dating all the pretty girls in college, and I was more (laughs) intellectual. And he was from a Protestant background. I was from a devout Catholic background. But actually, my, my parents had a lot of Protestant friends. So it wasn't as simple as that. The truth is, I had become a senator because I was elected in 1969. I had become a professor because I was appointed Reed Professor in 1969. So I was a senator, professor, 25-year-old, going on 26. And my parents thought nobody was good enough for me. I was on a pedestal. It was what I call the the sin of (laughs) overlove. And uh, that was really the complication. And so we actually did a trial separation to try to win my parents around, but they weren't winnable because nobody was good enough for me. And certainly this Nick Robinson, whom they knew had many girlfriends before me, and, and he was a cartoonist at this stage, and that was his work. He, uh, he later became a lawyer, but he, he was working for the Irish Times and other outlets as a political cartoonist. And all of this wasn't the profile for their wonderful daughter. And uh, there we are. But I made the decision of my life, in fact, the choice of my life. And this year we mark our 50th anniversary. So uh, somehow it worked. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it certainly worked. And I like that um, overloved that your parents obviously naively thought that if the two of you said that you would stay away from each other for a period of time to sort of test how serious the relationship was, that that would end the relationship. <laughs> obviously, it didn't. <laughs> You have three children and you talk in your autobiography about campaigning politically when you're heavily pregnant. You continued to work as a lawyer while having your family. And all of this was very unusual at the time. You referred earlier to the civil service bar. So women, when they got married, were no longer allowed to continue to work in the civil service. So what you were doing was very unusual. Now, life's moved on from there, but of course, the struggle to balance work and family life is still with us. How did you manage it? I had home help when the children were young, which was available in the Ireland of the time, and that helped a lot. But I remember, you know, many times having to assure my children that despite the fact that I was leaving them a lot to do my work as senator, etc., that they were the most important in my life. I made a terrible mistake when I was going quite a bit to the European Union, whether for cases before the courts or because I was involved in the referendum campaign for Ireland to join the EU and I was traveling to Europe and traveling to Brussels. And I told my children that if I went on an aeroplane, I would always bring them back a present. Unfortunately, I I was traveling too much on aeroplanes. So there were those kind of balances. But as I say, I now have six and virtually seven grandchildren because there's one to be born at the end of this month. And I see my children coping in a way that I didn't have to quite cope because I had this home help, you know, most of the time when the children were young. Let's now turn to your election as president. You had decided to retire from the Senate. You'd been there for 20 years. You'd been involved in a lot of important changes And then opportunity comes knocking in the form of asking you to be a candidate which the Labor Party would support for the presidency of Ireland. Your initial reaction? 
I actually was very surprised, you know, not at all interested, because the presidency tended to be out of the mainstream, a very high position, representing Ireland abroad, red carpets and a band accompanying, and I just wasn't interested. And then it happened to be Valentine's Day in 1990, and Nick, when I told him about being posed the question of, of, of accepting a nomination from the Labour Party, said, well, look, come to lunch and we'll discuss. And he asked me, you know, have you ever read the provisions of the Constitution relating to the presidency? And I had to admit, even though I was a constitutional lawyer and teaching constitutional law, that I'd skipped that bit. It just wasn't <laughs> interesting. And when I looked at the oath that the president takes and the fact that we could have a directly elected president above politics and below politics, I got fired up with the idea that a president should be much more proactive in Irish life. And when I was eventually nominated, I insisted on running as an independent, which the Labour Party initially didn't want. They wanted me to rejoin the Labour Party and be their candidate. And I said, no, I want to be a candidate for all the small parties, a rainbow of smaller parties and those who were not particularly political. And I was arguing the case for a more active presidency, not at all convinced that I would be the the winner because the, the bookies in Ireland had said I was 100 to 1 against the possibility of being elected. And then gradually, because I was out on my own initially before the other two candidates, including the deputy prime minister, the Tornishta, were nominated by the two bigger parties, I got a lot of airtime on local radio, local newspapers, and I was learning of what was happening in the country, which was very exciting at the time. Ireland was beginning to see money in rural Ireland through our membership of the European Union and the common agricultural policy, stable prices. And so people were feeling the benefit of that, and they wanted more facilities in their towns and parishes and villages for the young people, for the elderly. But the government wasn't providing this. So people were volunteering. It was an incredibly active time of the spirit of what we call mehel, which is an Irish word which can't be translated. It's like Ubuntu in Africa. It comes from the farming practice of farming with the one tractor and all the labor in one field, and then the following week it'll be the next field. And if that farmer was sick, the field would still be farmed for that family, and so on. It was that kind of sense of neighbor. So I saw this self-development going on, and I talked it up because I was so excited about it. And of course, people really liked it. And then, you know, it gave me that sense of a president who could be both below and at the national level and at the international level, a voice for the people of Ireland, separate from the political system, which was what I spoke about then in my inauguration. We should just make it clear that in the Irish system, it's quite unusual, really. The president is directly elected, but the seat of political power is with the prime minister called the Taoiseach in Ireland. So in Australia, our equivalent here would be the governor general, who, of course, is not directly elected. But a role that you made through your work and efforts, a more recognised and important role. But just referring to that campaigning that you did, the length and breadth of the country, you tell a wonderful story in your book about a gentleman from the Labor Party in his very rumpled suit looking at you as you were going campaigning and saying, Mary, 
you need a makeover. <laughs> How did you respond to that? That's right. <laughs> yeah, Jim Kemmy was a beloved figure in his city, Limerick, but he was always a bit dishevelled and uh, very much a man of the people. And for him to say that was very funny, but it was true. What I looked like was an academic lawyer. I didn't look like a presidential candidate. And it was actually part of an opening of a personal nature that changed me. And I recognized it changed me. It changed me from being more like my father, serious and academic and intellectual, to being more like my mother, warm, people-friendly, interested, and very outgoing. It brought me out of myself because you cannot run for president of a country without showing who you really are and opening up. We had never had photographs, although I was 20 years in the Senate, we never had photographs of our children. So it was very interesting to have the first photograph in one of the Sunday papers of our three children sitting on the couch, the dog in the middle, and Nick and myself at the end. And Nick and myself were giving our photographic smiles. Our three children were glaring at the camera, and even the dog (laughs) was glaring. So, you know, once I opened up, it changed me as a person, and I could never go back to being the specific lawyer, uh, more detached because I was arguing cases and making points intellectually. And uh, I'm grateful for the fact that I did open up and, as I said, become more like my mother. It changed you and it changed Ireland because you were elected absolutely against the odds, the first woman. It had always been a position taken by people supported by a different political party than the coalition that supported you. Your political experience had been in the Senate, not a lower house seat. And you said when you were elected, I was elected by the women of Ireland who instead of rocking the cradle, rocked the system. What did you mean by that? What I meant by it was that women went quietly to the polling station and voted not the way their husband expected them to vote or their father expected them to vote. And I got proof of that in a lovely way years later when I was based in the United States with a small organization called Realizing Rights, doing work in African countries, which brought me to climate and climate justice, but also speaking in the United States during the Bush era about human rights. And I was in Boise, Idaho. I had spoken to an audience that included quite an Irish American audience. And I saw this youngish woman walking up, smiling with her hand outstretched. And I came down from the small podium, actually, to be on the same level. You know, we we greeted each other. And she said, I want to shake your hand. You were my first vote. I was 19 at the time. And when I told my father, he nearly killed me. And I remember that so well. <laughs> that was that was what happened. <laughs> That's a lovely story. And there's one other anecdote about that time that I love. Uh, one woman's reaction to the election uh, was that when her husband said it was time for her to serve him some tea, that she said, make your own tea. Things have changed around here. I love that as well. That's right. <laughs> By the time you left as president, you you were incredibly popular. Your approval rating was 93%, but you chose to leave that office to become the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And you took the opportunity to widen the commission's brief to include issues affecting women, issues like food and water security, shelter and health care. Can you tell us about that experience and has it made you more optimistic about the potentials for progress in women's rights? It was a great challenge and one I was so excited about initially 
to become the UN High Commissioner. I was the second commissioner. The first one had retired suddenly to become Foreign Minister of Ecuador. The office was small and underfunded. And I had come from a very secure, well-supported and well-loved at this stage presidency, where everything was working like clockwork, into an almost dysfunctional small office with huge demands on it to give leadership on human rights globally. And I say this because between September 1997 and Christmas, I overworked. I started taking sleeping pills. The job nearly broke me. By Christmas, I was close to a mental breakdown, as my brother, who had come home as a doctor from New Zealand, said to me, Mary, you're on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And hearing my brother's voice say that was enough for me to really pull myself together. I threw away the sleeping pills. I took extra time, an extra two weeks uh, to steady myself. And then I began the process of building with my colleagues, some of whom were excellent human rights officers, We built up an office that I was so proud of at the end of the fifth year uh, when I left because we were tackling all of those issues, women's rights, issues of disability, the economic and social rights had become much stronger. China had signed the two covenants on civil and political rights and economic and social rights and ratified the covenant on economic and social rights. I had visited six working visits to China as high commissioner, which hasn't happened since. I was loving the kind of intensity of the work, but it's a very, very tough job. And eventually, because my extra year that I did was started on 9-11, literally on the day, the 11th of September, 2001, and I had to then be the critical voice of the Bush administration, the United States were determined that I wouldn't stay on for the whole of a second term, which I had offered to do to Kofi Annan, my boss. That's an important lifetime lesson, the one you've shared then about pacing yourself. The work is so important, the passion for the cause is so important, but you can only do it year after year, indeed decade after decade, as you have if you're aware of where the limits are, how to take care of yourself too. That's right. And actually, it's also a lesson in not being afraid to show your vulnerabilities, because that was the chapter in the book that most appealed to Irish people that Mary Robinson had been almost having a mental breakdown. There were radio shows about it. It was of great interest. And I I didn't want to write about it, but I wrote my memoir with my daughter, who was the eldest of our three. So she had the longest memory of my life. And she was great in helping me to to write about it. And she said, no, mom, I remember. I remember how bad it was. You didn't even want to talk to us. So I wrote about it. And I so appreciate allowing myself to be vulnerable and talk about it. You've talked about your vulnerable moments so well. And, you know, it's, it's, it really is important. And also, it's a lesson in the importance of human rights, even when advocacy for them is running against community sentiment, the way it would have been after 9-11. Yes, uh, I, I was very aware that I had to speak out And even journalists would say to me, are you not afraid of your job? And I said, you know, I'm here to do the job, not to keep the job. And, you know, it it was as, as difficult as that because I was a lonely voice, but I was passionately committed to holding the United States to its own international human rights commitments on issues like torture, on issues like rendering people abroad for torture 
and the treatment of the Muslim community and so on. It was a tough time, but I was very proud of the office. In the time since, you've set up the Mary Robinson Foundation for Climate Justice and you're drawing the link between effective action on climate change and gender equality. Why are women's rights so important to tackling climate change? Climate, to me, is all about injustice. And there are layers of injustice. There are actually five layers of injustice. There's the injustice that it disproportionately affects the poorest countries and communities and indigenous peoples, and even poor communities and rich countries, like after Hurricane Katrina in the United States. And then within that, the gender dimensions, it disproportionately affects women and girls because they still have to put food on the table. They have to go further in drought to get the firewood. They don't have land rights in a number of cases. They don't have access to credit. They don't have the same status in their society, the social and norms are different. And all of this affects women and girls disproportionately. I'm glad that children are bringing out now the intergenerational injustice, the uh, Fridays for Future, Rita Thornburg, and the millions of girls and boys who are really holding us to account for having a safe future for them. And I so appreciate that. There's also an injustice we don't talk enough about, which is the injustice of the pathways to development. The pathway to development for Australia and Ireland and the United States and the industrialized world was fossil fuel. And we should honor the workers in fossil fuel, in coal and oil and gas. But we need to wean ourselves off. And you are very strong on this and you had your tax that in a way pulled you down, but it was the right move for Australia. And hopefully Australia will get back on that path. But that's the challenge for the industrialized world to wean ourselves off fossil fuel and do it quickly to stay at a world of 1.5 degrees warming at most, as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has strongly advised. And developing countries before the Paris Agreement, as I recall, because I was a special envoy, committed to going as green as possible in their future development, bringing their people out of poverty. But they said, we will need the investment, we will need the skills, we will need the training, etc., And we haven't really provided that solidarity enough. And the fifth layer of injustice is the injustice to nature itself. And that's the one I came to, I'm sad to say, last, but now probably I think is one of the most important. It's the loss of biodiversity. It's the extinction of species. It is what has led to COVID-19, the encroachment on wild animals and the wet markets that has caused the virus to jump from animal to human. And We are open now to pandemics because of the way we are living beyond nature's boundaries. So I'm even more passionate about climate justice than I was when I started my foundation and wrote the book of stories of climate justice. The book on climate justice that I wrote has 11 stories and nine of them are about women, but there are also two good men. (laughs) I feel like we could talk all day, but we can't do that. So I'm going to come to the questions that we use to conclude these podcasts. I always ask our guests about a fact, and the fact I want to put to you relates to, given you've worked across a lifetime on women's access to contraception and to being able to manage their reproductive health, Two years on from the momentous Irish referendum on abortion, according to the UK Government Department of Health, last year 375 women and girls left the Irish Republic to access abortions in clinics in England and Wales. 
Why do you think we're still seeing that travel when women can finally access legal abortions in their own country? I think it's because women still feel a desire for privacy if they can afford to go abroad, to be able to do it without other people knowing or knowledge about it. There are abortions being performed in Ireland. It's under relatively strict conditions. We're not going to, I think, change that dramatically in any way. And so I can understand that some women would want to go abroad for their abortions, partly because of cultural norms, partly for privacy reasons, and sometimes because in the circumstances they would not get an abortion in Ireland. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? I think it was during that period when I was trying to change the law on family planning in the early 70s. I wouldn't call it misogyny exactly, but when I became president, I suffered from what a lot of women in public office, and I'm sure you also as prime minister would have suffered from, the clothes and the hair factor being so much criticized. And I had a great special advisor at the time who's still one of my closest friends, Bride Rosney. And when I was accepting a visit from an incoming president, the journalists got in touch with Bride Rosney and said, what will the president be wearing? And Bride said, well, if you tell me what the incoming president, of course, a man, is wearing. I'll tell you what my president will be wearing. And that kind of dealt with that issue. But women are held to a different standard in their appearance when they're in public life. And it's sometimes quite cruel and sometimes quite unfair. I remember that only too well. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure. If you had a magic wand, if you had all the power in the world and you could change one thing for women, what would it be? I think it would be that women would have the self-confidence that men have in developing their full potential. And that stems from how girls and boys are educated and that sense of girls that they may not be good enough so they don't go forward for the promotion later in life. They don't go forward for the head of the office. They don't go forward. I would like to see women have that confidence and I would like it to be combined with the self-doubt as well, because that's a richness in women, that they challenge themselves inwardly to do better. When women, former and, and current heads of state or government come together, very often they talk about the mistakes they made. I don't think men, when they come together, do that. So that's a strength. But with that strength, I'd like to see more conf- self-confidence to go forward and make sure that humanity benefits from that balance, that 50% balance in decision-making at every level. Virginia Woolf says, we can best help you to prevent war, not by repeating your words and following your methods, but by finding new words and creating new methods. Mary Robinson says, I certainly agree with that. And I take comfort from the number of women-led governments who are doing better at the moment in COVID because they took tough decisions early and brought their people with them and listened to the science And I think this will be good for women's leadership in the future and for the confidence that women can, by being more concerned about the welfare of their people in a deep way, and therefore listening to the science and taking those tough decisions, help us to move forward globally um, in this very difficult time when we have to come out of the COVID crisis with a still looming climate crisis and, in the words of the UN, build back better. Build Back Better. That's a lovely note to conclude our conversation on. Thank you very much.
You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Mm-hmm.